Welcome to episode three of the McFrizz Files, Life on the Run. I'm your host, Christy, here in the Just One More Thing studios in Linwood, Washington. <laughs> and joining me as co-host and guest in out there in the Too Cheap to Turn on the Heat studios in Kyle, Texas, Mike. Hello, Mike. Hello, Christy. How are you today? A um, little chilly, but uh, <laughs> that's my prerogative. So. But do you do you have the? Did you pull out the space heaters? I do have a space heater in the in Emily's office where I'm currently recording. <laughs> All right. So today is hour three of TVTL, the clip that we're gonna um, talk about today. It starts with Mike deciding to leave Seattle and his family to live as a fugitive in San Diego. I won't give away too much. Here's that clip. A fugitive must be a rolling stone. Down every road, there's always one more city. I'm on the run. The highway is my home. Um, tonight, though, uh, we get to the point in the story, uh, Mike, where, where you where you needed to leave the Seattle area where you had been living. You had robbed a lot of banks already at this point, uh, and you were married, and you had a stepdaughter who you were very close to, I know. Uh, but was it because your ex-wife was starting to get too suspicious? Was it because you thought that the police might bust you, or was it just because you didn't want anyone hassling you and you wanted to just take your drugs in peace? Why did you leave? I was slightly paranoid that the police or the authorities, the FBI, were were starting to get some sort of idea because I was getting a little bit lazy and I was doing some of these banks in the Seattle area. Um, sometimes I was traveling to Oregon to do them. Other times I'd do them pretty far out of Seattle, but I was getting pretty lazy. Because when you started out, you told us uh, a couple of days ago that you, you would really make a point to go to banks that weren't anywhere near where you lived you would wear maybe a cap from a random city's baseball team that you'd mm -hmm. never been to. You were doing a lot to throw people off the scent. But now when you got to Seattle, you were starting to slip up a little bit. Right. And not only not only was I starting to slip up that way, but I was starting to get sloppy with the personal details and, and the lies. My, my wife as we mentioned on a previous program had found a great deal of money in my in my van from a particular lucky particularly lucky um, robbery that had happened, and I had to make up a bunch of stories about that. Uh, she was starting to ask questions about uh, why can't she visit me at my office and why, um, you know, where... Because you had made up a pretend job that you worked at a sporting goods for a sporting goods company and right. that you traveled and sold. With You had a fake cell phone, fake business cards, but none of this actually existed. Right. Well, the cell phone existed. Well, yes. But, the, but yeah, the... the there well, were there was a lot there were a lot of lies going on. I just think about in a normal marriage every night at dinner you talk about your job. Were mm -hmm. you making up stress at work and or having a good day or a bad day that kind of thing? Sometimes when when asked I would provide whatever stories I needed to but but it wasn't like I uh would think about okay well here's a story I'm going to tell about work tonight. Um that Did you have people at work you had made up that you could refer to, yes. like Jim at the office? Kind yes. Of thing? Do you remember any of those names? Uh, I used to use names of agents of Major League Baseball players because I knew she didn't follow baseball. So there was a Scott Boris? 
There were there might have been Scott Boris at the time. I know Tony Adnazio was the name of a, an agent at the time, and that was my boss. <laughs> <laughs> Who did Tony Adnazio right? Re- I can't represent? remember. Maybe uh, maybe Tony Bernazard, maybe some guy like that. I don't know. <laughs> oh my gosh! So so, I mean, you w- was your uh, your wife at the time? Now your ex wife was she sort of not buying it? increasingly while she finds $26,000 in your mm-hmm. minivan. Mm-hmm. I mean, did you feel like this is going to come to some kind of head very soon? Yeah. it. She was starting to mainly ask, you know, let's go Let's go see your office. Let's go visit your office. And I, I, it, at that point, it was beyond me to, to go that far and set up, you know, I'm going to go rent an office space. And You're like, this in. isn't the sting. <laughs> I can't make I, I can't build a fake place and have Robert Redford working there as a, you know, bartender or whatever. Right. And and I was real run down from my addiction. I mean, right. really really getting completely exhausted. So, I just made a decision one night that the next day I was going to leave. And it was really tough because, you know, I was I was married and uh, we were in love, and I had a stepdaughter who I was really in love with too. So that was a tough decision. Can you tell me a little bit about the last day? I mean, I know this is a pretty emotional thing for you, but but how you how you actually you know did you leave a note or something? Well, I was the one who usually woke up uh, my stepdaughter and got her dressed and fed, and. She was not a morning person, so you know the fact that I was completely broken up, you know, was slipping by her, which is a, a good thing. So even though you were you were taking a lot of prescription medications and you were in a bit of a haze, it, the emotional impact of this was still really hitting you. The day that you were like, "I'm leaving, I'm abandoning my family." Yes, there's there's no way that something like that can't penetrate, no matter what kind of haze you're in or how, how many defenses you put up with substances. So I I got her up out of bed and and she's just one of those kids where all she could really respond to is that arms up, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, so you could get her dressed. And then, you know, she was the type of kid, too, where you just couldn't interest her in any breakfast. You know, you could put a chocolate sundae in front of her. She'd fall face down asleep in it. So um, the fact that I was, you know, hugging on her and, and kissing her a lot that morning, she didn't raise any bells with her and and my my wife was busy in the other room getting ready for work she had to dress up for her work so she usually was an involved process and then um she would take my stepdaughter to uh preschool and so i kissed them goodbye at the garage door and i told them uh, that i'd see him tonight and then where did you go well i did write a note and i don't remember what was in that note it was you know i can barely make it out probably because I was crying so much, but I, I had planned to uh, just drive, drive South and I got in the car and I drove, uh, this was in January of 1993 and I drove, uh, South until I got to the, until I got to Ashland, Oregon and you get up into the, into the mountains, into the Siskiyous and I had to put chains on the car there and I put the chains on the car and I remember driving through the pass there and 
I didn't even stop. Once I got through the mountains, I didn't stop to take the chains off. I just sped up to 70 miles an hour and just the chains flew off. And I mean, I was real emotional. I had stopped and, you know, I was taking more than my usual amount, which is a great deal of, of pills. And, and I had stopped and, and gotten a, a bottle of whiskey too, because I, I wasn't sure if I'd be able to fall asleep. So, you know, there I was just bombing through the bombing through the mountains high out of my mind. And, and I finally stopped in uh, Reading and got a hotel room and, and passed out there. The next morning I, um, I got up and I drove the rest of the rest of the way through California. And I, I stayed in San Diego for a few days. Did you know that was where you were headed from the start? I, I knew that I was going to uh, probably end up there and I, and I wanted to sort of set up, set up my, I guess, base of operations as a fugitive or whatever from there. Um, I had a friend who went to law school at USD up there on the hill above San Diego. It's such a beautiful area. And I also had bought drugs while I was down there. So I knew someone that I could talk to about that. Uh, but it was an area that I was familiar with because I'd visited him a couple times. And so I, I just drove there and I, and I checked into a hotel, uh, in Point Loma and I stayed there for a couple of days and sort of got my, got my next steps together. Did you have any money at this time? I, I still had some money from my last robbery. I probably had between $1,300 and $1,800. I know I had enough money to get through a, a few weeks. But you weren't going down there with the thought of like getting a job and starting your real life over again. You were just did. What was your plan to just rob banks in a different state? No, if if I had planned to get my stuff together, I would have stayed in Seattle and done it. In fact, my, my wife, had, she told me when we eventually talked again, she said, you know, you could have gotten away with it. You could have just told me and we could have put it together and, you know, you we, you could have had a normal life. But I wasn't ready. I that was ready have, to quit drugs. That must have been when you had that conversation, like the hardest thing you could ever hear. Yeah. And and you weren't in any way heading to Mexico. That was never part of this. No, it wasn't. It Obviously, it would be in the back of your mind, though, if if the heat was ever so great, I mean, Mexico's right there. You could you could get away there. But I never really thought that, that the authorities were going to catch me. And you don't know how to write a note in Spanish. <laughs> the dinero in the sack. So, Not that much of a maestro. Right. So you so you you you're you've in San Diego. You've got a, a little bit of money, but you have to now kind of set up shop again. And did you have a fake name that you? You you obviously had a fake name, right? Yes. Can you tell us what your fake name was? Uh, Andrew Michaels. Andrew Michaels, mm -hmm. the fourth member of Wham, almost never gets talked about. He played Triangle. <laughs> How did you Andrew Michaels? Because uh, your middle name is Andrew, right? Yes. And uh, the Michaels just was generic, or was well, that his a first name? name is Michael? Yeah, derivative of my first. I didn't name. put that together. This is why I would not make a good investigator. <laughs> So you, you're, you're Andrew Michaels, and how do you rent an apartment? How do you do anything when you don't have ID or, or, and you, you, you know? Well, what I did was when I got to San Diego, I uh, found the person that I had bought drugs from before and uh, talked to him about setting up a, a deal because I, I wanted to buy a lot of drugs at once at that point because now – I'm a fugitive and I figure my face is now going to be in a lot of places. So the the less I'm going to have to wander out into the community to do anything, especially among people who might want to give the cops a tip about something, 
the better. So I talked to I talked to him about setting up a deal, and we kind of, you know, that's a whole, that's a whole other story. But he pointed me in the right direction uh, to someone who might be helpful in obtaining some documents that would sort of get help me get my life set. I up. see. So you had you had kind of fake paperwork. Yes. And did you ever try to get a normal job, or did you just start robbing banks and the whole cycle starts again? I did not try to get a normal job. I was way beyond that point. And what I what I did was I started uh, casing some some banks up, you know, up and down uh, from Santa Barbara, Carpinteria down. Uh, all the way through San Diego, I started casing different banks and knowing that I would have to do those jobs, and and also uh, ended up taking some side trips to Colorado and to Arizona and uh, and doing some jobs over there too. And your what was your living situation? Did you have your own place? Were you crashing with someone? I no, I I didn't make any friends or or bring anyone back from my whole life. My goal was to disappear and be completely unmemorable. I got an apartment on uh, on Claremont Road between uh, Mission Bay and Tecolote Canyon and just started spending most of my days in my apartment. I would go I would go occasionally into Mexico so that I could uh, you know just have a little entertainment. I would go uh, do some sports gambling, watch some highlight things like that just to pass some time. But most of my time was spent at home. And while you were in your apartment, um, did you ever get wind that they were looking for you? I did my best to stay completely clear of any contact with with uh, any family members, anything like that. And and in fact, never made any phone calls and never never really had any indication that anybody was on to where I was. The one time when it did kind of hit me, uh, I turned on, when when you turn on your cable television in San Diego, at least back in those days, it turned on to a particular channel, which was a real estate channel. And you'd switch on your TV and these would be rolling through these houses. And then about six minutes of houses and then they do three minutes of bad guys. And I like Crime Stoppers? Yeah, like a Crime Stopper video. And they'd show people that, you know, had had killed people. They showed people that, uh, you know, were on the run for, for major drug crimes, things like that. And then one day I flipped on the TV and there I was. In San Diego you saw this? Uh-huh. And it wasn't it wasn't a, a, the usual Crime Stoppers bank photo, you know, the grainy photo of me ducking out somewhere. It was a photo of me that obviously my wife had provided the FBI, because eventually they figured out what I was doing, and it was just a picture of me. I think I was in the in the backyard throwing a snowball or something like that. What did you did you pass out on the spot? It was really shocking, and I had just gotten back from Mexico, and I was planning to watch this basketball game because I think I'd put some money on a basketball game, and so I turned on the TV and I just. I just I think I was staring at that loop that 9 minute loop of of real estate and criminals for... What a great channel by the way. <laughs> if you're looking for a two bedroom that's you know got central location and also 
if you know any criminals. <laughs> oh, hopefully this house isn't anywhere near yeah. these guys. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so you just sat there watching I, it. I watched it. I must have watched it for four or five hours. I, I, about an hour in, I timed it. And then I figured out, oh, well, I'm on here every nine minutes. Oh. And oh. I, I started thinking, it, does, everybody's, does everybody's TV go on to this channel? When they turn it on, is everybody, is one out of, you know, nine people that turn on their TV going to see my mug right there? And then how how dangerous does that make it? But, you know, that that video was on for many months before I finally decided to turn myself in. So either it's a really ineffective way of catching It's like Chinese or... water torture. It wears you down eventually. <laughs> it just took months in your case. Yeah. Uh, I, I, it did not, it didn't really affect my decision to turn myself in, but uh, when I first saw it, it, it did inspire some paranoia and it definitely brought home the fact that uh, I'm, I'm a huge fugitive. They really want me. Did you ever allow yourself to think about, I mean, I'm sure that you couldn't, but think about like, what if your parents get sick? Or what if something like that happens and nobody knows how to reach you and you're gone, that kind of thing? I didn't allow a lot of that to get into my head because I was, you know, had I sobered up while I was doing that, um, while I was a fugitive, I'm sure a lot of that would have gone through. But, you know, I, I was consumed with staying high and not being seen. You know, it, and it's sad, but it's true. I, I didn't worry a lot about anyone besides... Probably, I was real worried about my stepdaughter because she had never known her real father. And then she got a couple years of a father. And then this, I felt horrible about that. But um, While you were down there, and by the way, this makes me feel a little used, a little cheap. While you were down there in San Diego, you became very good friends with a radio program <laughs> that uh, was a sports talk show, right? And you would just call in a lot. I guess you had a lot of time on your hands. To watch a lot of sports. <laughs> and you became kind of one of their favorite uh, callers and stuff, and I could, I could imagine why. Um, but it got to the point where they asked you to be a special guest host when one of the people was out of town. Yeah, there, there was a show on uh, XTRA, which is uh, Extra Sports 690 at the time. They were the sports station in L.A. and San Diego, and they had a... Yeah, it's like a giant station. It goes goes all the way up and down. If you're a sports fan in Southern Cal, it's, you know, you kind of have to listen to it. From Baja to the Canadian Lee Rockies. Hacksaw Hamilton, one-time <laughs> Seattle Seahawks play-by-play -play for like one season. Yes, yes. Uh, he was the afternoon guy. The, the guys that I, I talked to were the night hosts, which were... Yeah, uh, Mason and Ireland. Mason oh. and Rick Schwartz at the time. Oh, okay. And they, uh, I, I would just start, I would start out just calling, you know, when they had a topic or whatever, and I'd call in and, and give my two cents or whatever. And then eventually it seemed like um, they were counting, counting on me to call in every night with some sort of comedy bit. And they gave me the studio line. That does not sound like our show at all. <laughs> hey, thanks for the Charlie Rose help, by the way, last <laughs> week. That was great. <laughs> So one night I called in on the studio line and I did my, they put me on, I did my bit. And then, uh, they, they said, hang, hang on. And one of the hosts, uh, talked to me off the air and said that, uh, they, they were, um, he was going to go on vacation, uh, the next week and they, he wanted me to come in and fill in as a, as a guest host. And did you have a, did you have an, a, a, a second fake name for the radio show or were you, were you Andrew from, you know, Andrew from, I was San Drew Diego. from San Diego, Drew from San Diego. Yes. 
Now, did you actually go in and do the show? I did. Were you worried that this was somehow... They might have that channel, that real estate criminal channel. (laughs) Maybe somebody would be watching the real estate criminal channel with the sound off listening to Extra, (laughs) and then your voice would... I mean... Well, I had already met Mason and Schwartz at a couple station events, and they'd introduced me to the program director, too. I wasn't worried about going in there, even though it was right across the street from the California Highway Patrol right there on on Pack Highway. (laughs) I wasn't that worried about it. Um, What the experience did, though, was it really hammered home for me the fact that here I am about to do something that I've always wanted to do. But I can't do it. You know, I can go in and I can do this guest host thing, but what if what if what if this turns into something? I can't do anything about it. I'm too high profile. You know, it would be too high profile. Somebody would recognize my voice and I'm done. So here you were having this dream thing possibly come into your into your world and because of all of the baggage that you'd now developed in the last two years, you were never going to be able to to actually attain it right was that was that a big part of you deciding that you'd had enough that was absolutely the moment when i was sitting in that studio that's when i decided to turn myself in um we've got to take a a break here but when we come back we'll hear from uh from mike uh what that was like Uh, this is tbtl on news talk 97.3 cairo fm please stay with us um, we're, we're talking about the time uh, when Mike found himself in San Diego. He'd uh, he'd, he'd left his family. Um, he was in very deep into his prescription drug addiction, and uh, and had 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 this great star turn, guest hosting a radio show, but um, but but in fact found that to be empty because. He couldn't really ever pursue that because he was a fugitive from justice, and and uh, so you decided that you were going to turn yourself in, but first you were going to clear these prescription drugs out of your system what did you do well i, I want to go back just a little bit we you mentioned that i had gotten on this uh nighttime radio show and that uh-huh. i had co-hosted uh a night and i had spoken with their program director and it really looked like something might happen there but by being who i was in the position i was it just that's when it hit me that um there was no there is no going back. I can't. I can't make this happen. I I need to, um, either, you know, have this be over with or have it be the end of me. You know, I needed to get out of this situation. So either get off the drugs or kill yourself. Yes, or die trying. You know what I mean. And, and it sounds like you nearly did. Well, what I what I did. I had heard that that kicking prescription drugs was very difficult. And most uh, doctors, in fact, probably every doctor would tell you not to try to do it cold turkey. They would try to dose you down off of these things. Just, you know, tomorrow you do a couple pills less. Tomorrow you do two more or less until you're finally down and and off of them. I was taking between 20 and 24 painkillers a day, and I was going to quit cold turkey. I wasn't sure how this was going to work out for me. So... I the morning that I was going to quit, I went uh, I went and bought some uh, aluminum hose and and I had a, a little garage in my apartment and I ran the hose from the tailpipe of the car into the um, into the passenger seat and I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna kill myself right then but 
I knew that I was going to be kicking drugs and it might become impossible. And so this was my this was my safety net, my backup plan. I was going to go out to my garage and and kill myself if I couldn't uh, successfully quit the quit the drugs. The story of of your becoming addicted to drugs and robbing these banks and all these things, it's a story of somebody whose life is in some kind of uncontrollable chaos, and yet you're so methodical about everything. Mm -hmm. You went and bought the hose. You set it up. When you were – you know, you – you, you stole a minivan and license plates. You're like you're an, an interesting combination of being someone who is incredibly reckless but planned it really well. Mm-hmm. So you are at your apartment and you did you just go lie down on the bed and kind of grab the sheets and go here 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 it goes. I did not take any drugs that particular day. I. Like I mentioned, I went I went and bought the stuff, and I did the thing in the garage, and I was probably back on my couch by 10 a.m., and I just sat there. I turned on the prices right and just started waiting to see what was going to happen. And I had kicked one time before uh, a few years earlier, but I had not been using for as long and as heavily. I probably was doing half to two-thirds of of the amount of pills that I was currently doing in in San Diego. And and that first time was really rough with a lot of hallucinations and sweats and nausea. So I'm, I'm get through prices right, young and the restless is on, starting to feel a little little bad. Uh by the time uh two o'clock rolls around General Hospital, I'm feeling pretty bad. I'm starting I'm now I'm lying down on the couch and I'm starting to shake and sweat a little bit and it just got a little worse every hour and the last thing I remember for about the next five days that I could be sure was reality was seeing I was in my bed then and it was uh, 10.08 was the time on the clock 10.08 p.m. and then I was I was just checked out for about five days I, I believe I'm I might have gotten to the fridge and the bathroom, but I mean, my bedroom was a complete disaster of all kinds of, you know, all kinds of things that happen when you can't control yourself, can't control your body. Uh, the hallucinations were the worst part of it. I mentioned before the worst hallucination I had was of lying down in a graveyard, not being able to move, just lying down on top of the ground and all the hands coming up from all the the dead people trying to pull you down into the grave. Did you have that kind, that specific hallucination again the second time that you kicked? I I had it the second time, and I I even had it um, the night before I turned myself in when I was most of the drugs were out of my system. So it it had gotten so far into my psyche that it just became it became more than a hallucination. It became then a nightmare that I would have. Did you have a point where you where you uh, thought? I mean, do you have any memory of having the thought, I would, I wish I was just in the car right now so I could run the hose, so I could end this? I mean, fortunately, I felt so bad and I was so out of it that I never remembered that I'd set that up. Oh. In fact, uh, when I when I finally went out to the car to drive drive back and turn myself in, I remember seeing the hose and going, oh, good thing I didn't remember that. Uh, and also, I don't think I was – my garage was uh, probably a good 200 
feet away from my door and I don't I was barely capable obviously I could barely get to the bathroom so I just probably couldn't have gotten there did you so, have any concern that neighbors were going to hear you because you were probably screaming in agony at some points of this yeah the way my apartment was set up and when I was in my bedroom relatively safe spot if I'd have been closer if I would still been out in the living room you know, they might have called the police because who knows? I, I don't really know what I was saying or what I was doing. I could have been doing anything. I could have been completely silent. I don't know. You, you I was so out of it that uh, I just sort of came to my senses about five days later. Have you ever talked to a doctor now or somebody who has medical training about how just how dangerous that is, what you did? No, but when I was... When I was in the halfway house on my way out of uh, federal prison, I started listening to Loveline. And Dr. Drew. <laughs> and Dr. Addiction Drew. Me and if, addiction medicine specialist. That's right. And if you listen more than a couple nights, you do hear him talking about um, coming down from opiates and how foolish it is to do it cold turkey. And it, it needs to be a, a, a completely handheld operation you know you have to you have to go through all these steps and you have to be completely honest with with them about what you're taking and all that and um i feel really lucky i think it was because i was 28 years old and in relatively good health that i was able to get through it i think if i tried to go through like some, something like that now my body would just laugh and say come on you're done buddy what what's the first conscious memory you have of of coming out of it a little bit was it like in in the movies where the person, it's like the sun comes up finally and they are kind of sweat-soaked, but they're, they're free. Clear-eyed. They're clear-eyed. Yeah. They're free of it. Was there ever a deserve a moment like that? I remember you being really hungry and thirsty. And, and I remember... Um, Which must have been a relief that you were feeling hungry, yes. like you were having normal... That's how I knew that I, I was going to be okay, too. And, and I knew I just realized I have a big mess to clean up here because I, I didn't want to... Uh, I knew I was eventually going to go turn myself in, but, you know, I didn't want anybody to have to deal with what I saw when I woke up. Yeah. Wasn't a pretty sight. Wasn't a pretty smell. Um, so I, I remember thinking, I, I got I got some work ahead of me here. And and after you cleaned up your place uh, a little bit, how many days before you decided uh, you're heading back to Seattle? I, I waited a couple more days. I was still real shaky. I did not want to really have any – I didn't want to have, have to do a lot of kicking still when I was in jail. I didn't know what was waiting for me. I knew I was going to be in jail. I'd never been in jail, and I didn't want to be in a vulnerable position. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be in possession of my faculties, and you know, if I needed to defend myself, I wanted to be able to defend myself. So uh, I waited a couple more days. And I got my my stuff together, and I got in the car and started driving north. And where'd you go when you got to Seattle? Well, I almost didn't make it the first five miles. I I had what I found out later is a panic attack when I got on the freeway, and I think it was just from the fear of of what I what I knew I was doing. I didn't know how much prison time I was facing, but it was very scary. I thought. You know, I could be going to prison for a long, long time, and here I am turning myself in, and I had this this panic attack where you feel, you know, numbness in your arm and you can't breathe. And uh, I pulled in next to a fire station, and I almost just walked in there and turned myself in 
right there saying, I'm, you know, I'm having a heart attack. I thought, I thought it was a heart attack. Uh, but I sort of calmed down and then I continued on my journey. And I think the first night, first night I stayed in Sacramento and I still was a little bit shaky and still had some, some, now they were just nightmares. They weren't hallucinations anymore. And it was, of course, hard to sleep because I knew what I was doing. I mean, it's... Sounds like it was, uh, the decision to turn yourself in was way scarier than the decision to rob a bank. Yes. Yes, because when I robbed the bank, I th I thought I was going to get away with it. And I thought that the, the, what was going to happen afterwards was I'm going to be able to pay my bills and, and get my medicine. And what what is the timeline here? How long were you officially from when you left Seattle to when you returned to Seattle? I was gone from late January until uh, the beginning of October. Okay. Um, well, you made it back to the Seattle area, and did you, what, did you go stay in a hotel? or uh, The last night before I turned myself in, I stayed in Eugene, Oregon, and that was an even rougher night. I got such an early start the next day because I just couldn't sleep. You didn't have a, like a final meal? You did, you know, you didn't do anything kind of symbolic or indulge yourself some way. No, I, I, it was one of those things where it's like I need to go do this before I lose my nerve. Yeah. So it couldn't be. I might figure, what, what if I do something like that and I decide, oh well, I'm okay now. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna go back to doing what I was doing. So I drove by my brother's place and I, I guess. I knew he'd be at work, so he wasn't really he wasn't home. So I drove by his place. That was the first, you know, person I wanted to talk to was my brother. But he wasn't home, and then I drove up 405 to my mom's uh, condominium in in Bellevue, and where she lived with my stepdad. And I just walked in the door, and they were a little surprised to see me. Yeah, because you were. A fugitive from justice, and obviously they knew about this. Mm -hmm. How long had it been since they'd seen you? They had not seen me since uh, probably Christmas, and now it was uh, the next October. It had been like 10 months. Yeah. Did they think you were dead? I don't think anybody thought I was dead because I think the FBI had filled them in that I was still, you know, Robbing. plying my trade. Yes. You the know? professor bandit. Yes. Was still working in Southern California. Right. So, but it was a really emotional thing uh, for, for both of them. I'm pretty close to my stepdad. So I sat down in their, in their living room and we, we talked for a little bit. They gave me updates on, you know, what had happened with the family and, you know, since I'd been gone. And I, I asked uh, I asked my stepdad to drive me to the police station. Did they just agree right away that that was the best course of action? There wasn't like, <laughs> did your mom say, why don't you stay here one more night? I'll get a good hot meal in you. You know, I'm not exactly sure. I know that they did start, they started to talk to me about lawyers and this and that. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't think they really grasped that I wasn't going to try to fight, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm turning myself in. I'm saying I did all this. Don't go spending money on some fancy attorney who's going to try to get me out of this. I with did the, it all. With his book learning. <laughs> Had they been, like, were their phones and all that, were, were they being monitored pretty closely, assuming you might try to contact them? I think at certain points uh, people were monitored. I, I'm sure my ex-wife was monitored as long as she was living in Seattle. The 
King County Major Crimes Unit was all over the case. The FBI was all over it. Uh, I don't know if they've got enough money or, or wherewithal to tap everybody's phone who you might call or you know want to go through all that, especially when the family probably wants you to get caught anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, not 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 that that's a bad thing. Right. I mean, uh, they, they, they know you're sick and they, they want you to, to come home safe. So. And did, while you were gone, was the FBI, were the authorities like hounding your your family and friends and people? And they must have figured they knew where you were because that's what always seems uh -huh. to trip people up as they go try to visit their mom or their girlfriend or whatever. You know, it's that association yeah. with the family still. Did they? Did the authorities really put a grilling on a lot of people? They did on a lot of people, on on friends and and family. They were convinced that that my uh, wife knew where I was. They were convinced that my friend Barb knew where I was. Um, I, you know, maybe not so much my my mom or dad, but you know, they they thought that that those that those that were real close to me, you know, friends and and my wife, they thought that they might know something. And, um, in fact, they didn't know anything ever. That must've been a very maddening experience for them. Yes. It was, it was, a, it was a really awful thing to, to put them through, especially because the FBI, uh, and King County major crimes, uh, when something like this happens and at first they can't even figure out what you were doing, you just disappear. Yeah. You, they started tracking you as a missing person, not mm -hmm. as a bank robber, right? Right. They didn't figure it out for a couple of weeks till they were showing some pictures to my wife and she goes, Oh, that's, that's him. And then they said, well, that guy has done this, 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 and all these parts of the country. And so sort of guess blew the lid off the whole case. But then they started, uh, because, because now I'm this international man of mystery, they started trying to link me to all kinds of unsolved things. There were some arsons going on in Seattle at the time. There was well, there, you've got to have hobbies. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't just be yeah. going after money. So yeah. or license uh, plates. They they linked me. Um, they they tried to link me to the Green River killings, even though I was probably only about thirteen at the time. I would have had to put the put the prostitutes in the basket of my bike and pedal them down to the river. Oh I mean, they had God. all kinds of crazy things that they brought up. And in fact, there was an association with Charles Barkley that, uh, who, whom I had met many years before work doing some, doing some work here for, for television. And they actually interviewed him about my whereabouts. They interviewed Charles Barkley. Yes. Why did they think that he would know where you were? Well, my, wife explained or told them that he was my favorite uh basketball player which he was and that I had met him I had met him while working for CBS Sports when they came to town to do the 87 All-Star game I'd driven Charles around um a little bit and they made some sort of association that I was going to try to meet him cuz I'd been I'd I dropped some banks around Phoenix and he was he was he was in Phoenix, and uh, so they, they interviewed him and asked him if he'd had any contact with me, which I would love to hear the transcripts from that. <laughs> yeah, that's you want to talk about discovery, you tell your attorney, your book-learning attorney, call, call for those interviews, please. I want to frame those. Right. Poor Charles Barkley. Now he's the one that's on the <laughs> FBI's most wanted list. Maybe sure. they'll interview you about Charles Barkley. What was his feeling on Ladies of the Night? <laughs> um, well... All, all of this got you to the point where you were – was it your stepdad yeah. driving you to the the uh, the police department? In, was it, it was a police station in Bellevue, and, and 
what I did was I walked into the lobby and I still had my original Washington State uh, driver's license and I walked up to the to the uh, bulletproof window there and there was a receptionist behind the window and I slid my license underneath and I said, uh, run this license, I'll be right over here. So I went and sat down and it was about a minute and a half, two minutes later, two uh, officers walked into the lobby and escorted me uh, to the back and then put me in a holding cell just for a little while before they took me down to uh, King County Jail. And now for your favorite segment, Christy has questions. Seriously? You have questions? <laughs> Shocker, no way. Right? <laughs> I thought I answered everything. I thought we went through the whole thing. Nope. On on the last night, it will just be crickets. I, I just, my questions will be gone. <laughs> sure. I believe that. <laughs> All right, Mike, are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Me. How long had you planned on leaving before you actually did? I think it was maybe, I mean, the seed was in my mind because uh, she kept finding, you know, or I don't want to say finding, but like seeming suspicious of all my activities. And, uh, you know, I just didn't, I just didn't want to quit drugs. So I, I, the seed was planted in my mind that um, I'm going to have to get out of here if I want to keep doing drugs. And I would say it was kicking around in my mind maybe for a few weeks, a month or two, uh, but really only about two or three days before I did it was I, you know, well, this is the day I'm going to, I'm just going to have to do it. Um, did she ever find, I mean, I know there was the Kate, the time when she found a bunch of money, but did she ever find any of the pills? Um, I, well, yes. I mean, I had prescription drugs in the house, you know, at all times. Like, I mean, we've noted that I did suffer from a lot of injuries or whatever. So it wasn't like I always hid every prescription that mm -hmm. I had, like the legit prescriptions, it okay. was, you know, it was okay to have those around. And, you know, if she, if she really needed, <laughs> if she, <re> she <laughs> had to I, prove if, it. <laughs> yeah. If I really felt like she was really hurting, I might part with a, a couple. Pills. Half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's get the pill cutter. Out. <laughs> uh, okay. So, oh, we got a question. Someone wanted me to ask you. If your bad knee, the initial bad knee, was on your stump leg, um, my initial bad knee, yes, the car accident was on my left leg. Uh -huh. My um, my dislocated knee was on my right leg. Oh, do you still have knee issues? Uh, no. I, after after I recovered from the second dislo uh, dislocation. I've never had a, a lot of knee issues, which is pretty lucky considering yeah. all the sports I've played. And, and my my um, brother and dad have both had uh, both of their knees replaced. So I feel lucky in that aspect yeah. anyway. Well, Still especially, have some, some original parts. <laughs> well, especially playing with no shoes on, which we find yeah, out. Yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was harder on my feet than yeah. my knees. That was really, really hard on my feet. All right, next question. How long... Had you been married before you left? Uh, I think we'd been married 
two years and one month. We got married during um, Christmas break. She was still in grad school in Florida, and we got married at the courthouse, the Alachua County Courthouse in Gainesville in December of 1991, I think, Oh, 1990, and yeah, somewhere around there. I don't want to uh, embarrass myself like Andrew did, uh, <laughs> but uh, we were married for about 25 months. Okay. Do you still celebrate your anniversary? Do you like drop her a message? Ah, uh, no, we oh. don't. <laughs> we don't do that. I mean, we're we're cordial and and we're actually very friendly. And oh, really? Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I yeah, we're great. But um, it's it's I don't want to joke with her about it. Cause oh yeah, it, no. it could get hurtful. So, how old was your stepdaughter when you left? Uh, she was six, I think. Six. Okay. And are you also cordial with her? Yeah. Um, she had, uh, some drug problems herself in the, uh, I don't know. She was about, uh, 18, 19 or something. And I, uh, flew down to New Orleans and, and, uh, helped her get through it, um, at, uh, Lee's request and we're we're good we're cool she we um i i made up with them about three four five months after i got to king county jail you know there were a lot of letters exchanged and Mm then um lee allowed me to talk to meredith and um we've been fine ever since they accepted my apologies and have forgiven me and um, we should explain Meredith is your stepdaughter, not Meredith. Yes. Of the show. Yes. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, Lee, Lee is my uh, ex-wife. Elisa is her name. Um, Lee for short. And then Meredith is, uh, was my stepdaughter. And so Meredith was probably 12 at the time. Cause if you left uh, at six and then you did about six oh, years. No, I mean, she, she was, she was six when I, um, became a fugitive. She was about three, probably three years old when I met them. And then when I left, she was about six and I didn't actually see her physically in person again until she was about uh, 18 or 19 when I went down to New Orleans. Okay. And now she's doing great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She's a productive, healthy adult. And do you, how much contact do you have with them? Um, I probably a little bit more with Lee than with Meredith. Um, I keep in touch with Lee because she gives me updates about her family and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, Meredith just occasionally when something will happen that we find funny or Mm -hmm. something, you know, just things that we used to joke about. So would, would these shows be something that they, they would listen to? I would doubt it on Lee's part Mm -hmm. for sure, because it would just open wounds. Yeah for her meredith maybe because she was so young and didn't really understand what was going on she might be mm-hmm. interested in hearing it but it's not something i would send her just in case it it would hurt her you know if she hears about it and asks me about it i'll send her the links mm-hmm. so you talk extensively about going through withdrawals because you decided that you were going to um do it on your own um, mm-hmm. And you had had a little bit of taste of what that was like when you first went to Florida. But I got from the story that it seemed like this time was a little bit worse. Is that true? It it was because I think the first time there there was some uh, physiological 
part of it and you know probably equal parts psychological part of it the second time because i was deeper in and taking more mm -hmm. of the drugs the physiological effects were more dire uh it, it really um because the first time it was just miserable and the second time i felt like well i i was gone i mean i i had no idea what was going on but i it was seemed like a near death experience mm -hmm. to me yeah, and you said that it it was like three days. You just woke up after three days. Yeah, yeah, it was several days. And I, when I woke up, I really didn't have any idea, you know, uh, how how much time had passed. And then I like I think I switched on the radio or something and and figured out how long I'd been, quote unquote, gone. I guess. Did you ever? Did you ever think about maybe going to the hospital to withdraw or did you not want to do that because they would have instantly just put you in jail? Well, I don't, I never really considered it, you know, um, and I never really considered it until you brought up this question because it it probably would have been a good idea, but um, I didn't have insurance. I don't know what I, you know, identification or what identity I would have used and it just I just felt like this whole ordeal was on me and I needed to get through it mm -hmm. um I don't know that that's a stumper for me I I never considered it but I don't know if it was because it wasn't a good idea or it just wasn't doable or feasible mm -hmm. um, and now knowing like you said is once you got out and went to jail and got out of jail, you you heard from Dr. Drew that you probably could have died and probably were on the steps of that, right? Like, you called yeah. it near death, but I'm sure that that... Because prescription drugs like opiates and alcohol are the two things that he says you should never try to quit cold turkey without, without um, doctor and hospital. Yeah, it's... Uh... And, you know, I, I totally believe it and I've, I lived it near died it. I would advise anyone who is severely dependent, you know, not just having a couple drinks every night mm -hmm. or not, not just, you know, taking pills three or four times a week. If you are using daily anything like that, um, please, you know get help because it would it would suck that when you're finally ready to clean up then your life is over that yeah. really that would be the worst when did you tell emily this story we um yeah i think if if you've ever followed our story our romance or whatever i I made a failed run at her at the book club in uh, <laughs> in Seattle when I was wearing my denim vest right. and my turtleneck sweater. <laughs> um, and then after that, we started uh, chatting. And then I think um, then we started talking on the phone. And I'm not saying it started to get serious, but I mean, we were interested in each other. And I, I didn't want to misrepresent myself because mm -hmm. um they hadn't talked about any of this on tbtl yet you know it wasn't something luke knew my past but he didn't like blurt it out yeah in the process of like getting to know me on the show 
Uh, so at the time I was working on a book about this experience and, uh, Emily was a magazine journalism major, uh, in college. And I just thought it might be a good way to, uh, let her know about my past to just say, Hey, I, I want your opinion on, I'm, I'm writing something and I want your opinion on this. And it would be a way to like, if if she's scared, she just back off at that point, you know, um, and we could just be friends or whatever, because I didn't want to like seem like I was luring her into a relationship and then, you know, tell her later. Oh, by the way. Right. Um, I'm a 38 time convicted felon. <laughs> um, so she said, sure. And I sent her the file and she uh, I don't remember. It seemed like a long time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, before I heard back from her, because yeah. when you, you know, when you, when you fart into a room like that, you know, you're just like, is anybody smelling this? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, she, she eventually wrote back and, and gave me some very valid criticisms of what I now consider to be one of the worst uh, pieces of literature ever <laughs> advanced on the world. And... <laughs> And I knew everything was going to be all right. She was cool with it. Um, oh, so you mentioned being engaged. So when you when you did these interviews, you had I think you were newly engaged. We all know the story of you getting married, but how did you engage Emily? Um, there was a. She was telling me about a Halloween party that her friend had every year, and that particular year the theme was prom and uh she didn't know that i was going to do this but i rented a tux and i um flew down unbeknownst to her her uh across the street neighbor he picked me up at the airport he let me like hang out at his house and he had a key to to her house and and when she took off it was like a saturday afternoon she 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 and cullen left the house he let me in and then when they came home cullen came in first and i did the shh you know he saw me in the living room and i went shh you know 38 time fell in the living room telling me to shh <laughs> and shooed him down the hall he went around the corner like a good kid and then she came in and and saw me and was really happy that i'd uh come to town you know mm -hmm. um sneakily or whatever and she came came uh up to me in the living room and and we hugged and then i got down on a knee and i asked her to marry me Aww. and then we went to the prom uh party that night uh me and my tux and her and her prom dress and um you know it was a nice way to let let her friends know that mm -hmm. we were engaged and you had a ring and everything yeah. Oh, you're fancy. Okay. So these questions come from me, um, as you may have heard on TVTL, and I talked a little bit about it um, last episode, is that Phyllis Fletcher went to the archives and got all of your sentencing and court documents. And so I've been trudging through those. Very interesting. I love reading legal documents. But mm -hmm. um, um, so these questions come from that. One bit of interesting thing is that I know the judge that was the judge on your case, which is mm -hmm. crazy. Um, he, 
she was friends with my old boss that has then since passed away. When I just, Judge Carolyn Dimmick, yep. the Honorable Judge Carolyn Dimmick, <laughs> did not like me. <laughs> I did not care for me. I think she didn't like me either. Maybe that's just her personality. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, it comes across in the court documents that she didn't. She wasn't a fan of me. Okay, so another thing that I noticed is that your lawyer and the judge both agreed that you should go to prison camp at Sheridan, but you actually just mm-hmm. went to prison. So what is the difference between those two, and why did you not go to the camp instead? Well, the uh, the judge probably, I mean, I don't know if she was just out of touch with uh, how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, my My lawyer was asking for camp because it's, that's just what you do because that's the easy place to do time. Um, the camp is, there are no walls. Um, there, there are no fences. It's, um, it's just an open, you know, uh, it's low security. And, uh, after that you have, like, like Sheridan where I went, there's a, there's a camp outside the walls where it's a it's smaller maybe two or three hundred inmates and then inside there were like nine hundred to twelve hundred inmates I can't remember somewhere in there uh, and then you know it's guard towers and guns and razor wires and mm-hmm. razor wire and a, you know truck uh, with guy with a gun going around and um, my lawyer asked for the camp because it's just more comfortable and that's what you do and. He expected her to say, no, you can't do that. But she said, yes. But the the thing is, she can't dictate that. The The Federal Bureau of Prisons uh, I see. Okay. dictates where you actually go. And then if you, if you have implied in a crime that you had a gun, then that's considered a violent crime and you're a medium high inmate. So that's where I, I ended up going in, inside. And, okay. and I really did hold out hope of going to the camp just because she made that error, mm-hmm. but it was really never going to happen. Once I, once I figured out how the system worked, I'm like, ah, oh, we never really had a chance yeah. at that. Anyway, my lawyer was nice enough to ask for it. And, and he, and he raised an eyebrow that it was granted, but, um, <laughs> I don't think he ever held, held a lot of hope yeah. that I was going to go to camp. I'm really glad I went inside though. It was better for me. There was a lot more stuff to do. Um, and I, come on. I mean, I did what I did. I deserve to be mm-hmm. punished and not just, you know, go where Martha Stewart went. Right. right. <laughs> um, okay. So this is the last question for today, um, or at least my segment. Um, mm-hmm. What do you have to say to someone who, that one of their parents or loved ones appears to be choosing drugs over them? You mean... Um... What's my advice to them? Yeah, I, I guess because you ultimately chose to run away from your family because you weren't mm-hmm. ready to give up the drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, I I would say I would say to them, be be tolerant, but don't don't get used. Just if if you feel like. I mean, if you know, I mean, people didn't know what I was going through, but Mm -hmm. if you see someone going through this and if they're asking for help, of course, give it. If they're not asking for help, then 
just don't don't get used because they they've got to hit their bottom. I think mm-hmm. you've seen it, Christy. I oh, mean, yeah. you've dealt with a lot of people in mm-hmm. in your family and and your friends that uh, that have gone through this and they will just use you and use you. And you know, don't have have try to have enough fortitude and pride to just say I love you. I will help you in any way I can, but I will not be used Mm -hmm. because I think that's the most prevalent thing. And that's where all the heartbreak happens is because the addiction doesn't give a fuck about anybody. Mm -hmm. And, and it makes the person not give a fuck about anybody. Even the people that they love. I loved my wife and daughter, but the addiction is greater than that. And it will be until that person is, is ready to quit. Um, you know, uh, talking about things like the show, like intervention and things like that, that's, that's fine. And that's cute. And maybe in some cases it'll actually work, but you know, I, I will just bet you that until the person, until it's their idea to quit, yeah, it's not going to work. Okay. Good advice. Okay. I'm in. Uh, let me see. So for each of these interviews, each of the nights that we're reviewing on our little red bandwagon, we are bringing in a person who had a ticket to the very, very crazy and shitty ride that I was on throughout my life until I got my stuff together. And tonight we have someone who was there when I was a fugitive. This is a gentleman whom I met in San Diego. Uh, His name is Rick Schwartz, and he was the host of the nighttime radio show, Too Much Show, on XTRA in uh, Los Angeles and San Diego, which uh, was the 50,000-watt flamethrower out of Tijuana. And uh, we talked about a little bit on the interview you heard just a little while ago, but um, Rick can take us a lot more in-depth on this. Uh, Rick, hello, and thanks for uh, coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Hey, it's always great to talk to you, Mike. Um, Christy... Uh, is my partner here, Christy Wise. Say hello, Christy. Hello. And hey, Christy. Chris, Christy is someone who always has a lot of questions. Yep. Um And I've just uh, walked a gauntlet of of her questions, and I think I have um, a couple more nights of that ahead of me. But luckily for you, you only have this one segment where you'll face her onslaught. But uh, with that, I guess I'll hand it over to Christy, and she can uh, she can ask her questions, and and I'm here for you, man. I'll back you up on anything you have to <laughs> <Beautiful>. say. <laughs> All right, hello, Good Rick. Deal. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey. <laughs> when did you first make note of Mike? I mean, he called in a couple times, and then were you like, "Hey, this guy's funny," or how did how did that all go? So, what happened was, you know, we had this five-hour-a-night monster, Monday through Friday. Five hours, you know, you get a little delirious after hour three, probably. So from seven to midnight every night, we sort of um, undressed sports talk radio, if you will. This was the early 90s. I think it was – what year was it, Mike? 
93, yes. 93. And Sports Talk Radio was, you know, guys who sounded real nasally talking about the second-string linebacker of the Bears um, and uh, whether or not he had a hangnail. And, it, you know, <laughs> you just drive off the road. It was so boring. So, mm. um, And it was nowhere near as uh, ever-present as it is today. So um, I wanted to change that. And e Extra Sports had a, an opening uh, and they, they brought me in with this uh, guy, Steve Mason, who was, uh, even though a young guy, a seasoned radio guy, really good at flying the ship and navigating. But we we had a, a unique partnership because I was able to bring out the funny in him. And and uh, he was um, he just needed someone like me. He had he had not succeeded earlier on the station. And then as a partnership, we really both blossomed and we we sort of cultivated what we call the dysfunctional family. <laughs> uh, of too much show, and yeah. we had we had a crazy old guy named Ed who would call in and play the trumpet, uh, and he was actually a blind man, and it was you know he just was a character, and we we had all these characters, and so I don't actually know how Mike found us, or if he just heard the show and said, you know, I could fit in here. <laughs> I, I don't know why he didn't call the other shows on the station. Maybe he well, can answer that. But yeah, yeah, uh, Rick, let me address that. Um. You you mentioned at the time, sports radio was not ubiquitous. I mean, a lot of uh, even decent-sized cities still didn't even have sports radio. And Los Angeles had two stations, I think. It was XTRA and then uh, I forget the call letters of the other one, but it had McDonnell Douglas show and all these um, other ones. But yeah, it was real straight-laced. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a crazy sports fan. I love sports. But... Uh, I don't take it too seriously. And uh, sports radio then in its infancy and even up to today, it bothers me a lot how seriously they take it and hot takes and, you know, everybody's everybody's trying to sound mad about everything. <laughs> um, your and your show, your show was different. You know, it was it, it was all tongue in cheek. We we're always to the side of the joke. Um, I just. I, I really enjoyed it, and I just had I had a lot of time on my hands, just sitting there, high out of my mind on the couch or whatever. And uh, you guys, you know, you really you really captivated me. And and yeah, you're right. Mason was sort of a straight laced radio pro guy, but he really cut loose when when he was with you. So that's that's what appealed to me, and that's why I I it was such a long show, but I just um I mean I had nothing but time and. And I really, I really like. So did we. I, I really like listening. You know, it's 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 funny because uh, Mike or Drew at the time was really a double-edged sword for me because to answer your question, like he just called one night, and he was so dang funny <laughs> that we encouraged him to call again. I think Mason probably ended the call by saying, "Hey, hey, hey man." Call us again sometime, you know, something like that. So he did, and he did it on a nightly basis. And for me, what uh, it, he was great, but as I said, a double-edged sword because he was just so much damn funnier than both of us put together. <laughs> so kind of made me look bad. <laughs> All right. And do you remember meeting him for the first time in person and where – what was the circumstances of that meeting? Um, 
Uh, Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the first time we met was at the Padre game, right? Is that right? Or yeah, did you come uh, into the stadium uh, to the to the studio first? No, it was it was definitely in the uh, Padres game. It was like a show outing or something. Yeah, we had a, a listener party mm-hmm. uh, at, at the San Diego Padre game, and I remember that uh, I sat next to I'll call him Drew at because that's who he was to me at the time. So I sat next to Drew at the game, and I said. I said, hey, I'm going to go buy a couple beers. You, do you want one? And he said, uh, sure, but I want to buy. And I said, no, you're not buying. He said, no, 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 I want to buy. And he just whips a 20 out of his pocket. It wasn't in a wallet or anything. He just <laughs> whipped a 20 out of his pocket and just handed it to me. And I said, all right, all right. So I went, I got us a couple beers. I think back then they were only about four bucks. So I, I come back, I hand him his beer. And and then I tried to hand him the 12 bucks change. And he says, no, keep the change. And I looked at him like, what are you, crazy? It's 12 bucks. Just take it. You know, it's your money. And he said, no, no, keep it. And I think that was the first time I ever looked at him strangely. Like, why the hell would he give me 12 bucks? Do you remember that, Mike? I don't. Uh, I remember reading that after, um, I don't know, someone – Somebody sent me the I, I my friend Dave in LA I guess he sent me the articles that were in the paper um, later on and and I saw you quoted saying that and I was like wow uh, it doesn't sound like me because I'm cheap but I, I probably <laughs> really wanted to reward y'all because you guys gave me so much you know th- really the only joy that I had in my life besides <laughs> being high was was listening to you guys. Well, that's that's the funny thing is that we, you know, y- you may have thought that we were giving you, but you, we were really the ones receiving because the the more characters that we have like you, and of course you are one of a kind and always top the list, but you guys made us funny and you guys made us popular. And so that's why we loved you and why we were so distressed when we lost you, frankly. Um, how did you decide to let him into your studio? And was that normal? Did you have like a crew of people that would come in? So nobody got into the studio. That was a completely unique situation to Drew Mm -hmm. slash Mike. Um, he was just so good. And, uh, Mike, again, correct me if I'm wrong. It was a while ago, but, I don't think you ever came into the studio before we invited you in to co-host. Is that correct? No, um, I I had not. And it, the studio was actually pretty close to where I ha- where I lived. I lived up on Claremont Mesa, and the studio was down there on PCH next to the California Highway Patrol. And I think I'm I'm pretty sure I re- replaced you that night. Yes, yes, you did. And I I remember looking at Mason saying. I'm going on a couple days vacation, uh, and why don't we have Drew from San Diego co-host with you? And Mason thought it was a great idea, and I think I called you and asked you, or or not called you because I didn't have your number. I think we had you hold on after yeah. your call that night. Is that right? Yeah. And yeah. and I, I said, hey, I have an idea for you. Um, and as soon as you were done wiping the slobber off the phone – uh, I, I think he tried to play it cool, but I'm, 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 he was pretty excited. And uh, yeah. it, it was awesome when he came in. I wasn't there, obviously, but um, 
Now, here it was a very unique situation. We never really invited people off the street to come in because who who knows? They might be on the most wanted list. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they might be. Didn't even know my criminals. last name or my real name. Well, did you know that That's he right. like that this was his dream job that he had a uh, had gone to college for it? I think he had told us, uh, was it, is the Murrow School at Washington or? No, what, that's uh, Washington State. That's I went at to Washington the State. super crappy uh, <laughs> now broadcast debunked. journalism school at the <laughs> University of Washington, which no longer exists. Right. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Well, but we did know that uh, he had gone to school and um, uh, for it. And we also knew he was so incredibly talented, whether. You know, whether it was to be on the air or or as a writer or whatever it was, uh, Mike slash Drew definitely had a gift. And that was apparent. Mm -hmm. And we milked it for every possible (laughs) uh, moment of laughter that we could to we we tried to entice him to call us as often as possible. So, yeah, we we knew that that's what he wanted. And um, we kind of put the carrot out there for him because it benefited everybody. So then all of a sudden he's a normal caller. You guys, he fills in for you, but then he just stopped calling one day. What did you think? Well, uh, first of all, we were pissed, you know, because (laughs) here's this guy who is the star caller and Mason and I were convinced. And back then there was no such thing as, there were no such thing as analytics. I mean, it was, you know, uh, we had no idea really there's there's a book what they call the ratings book at the end of each quarter and so on now i'm sure everything's analyzed a lot more uh, deeply but we we just knew that people were listening to our show partly for us but partly for drew from san diego's call every night so all of a sudden he disappeared for a couple of weeks i think it was and we were worried we didn't know what had happened to him because we knew he loved the show we knew it meant a lot to him it meant a lot to us, and we knew he wouldn't just take off without letting us know, because mm-hmm. it, it had been a pretty long run. So, um, all of a sudden, one night, we got a collect call. <laughs> we actually, you know, Mason and I are on the air, so we don't answer the phones. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a, a call screener, so the call screener is banging on the uh, window, saying, "Oh my God! Oh my God!" <laughs> This might be him. And we're, we're looking at him. You know, we're, we're not even listening to the caller that's talking on the air at that moment. Mm-hmm. And we're like, what are you talking about to this guy, Dave Marcus, who was our, uh, our board operator? And he says, we have a collect call from some penitentiary. I, I can't remember if it was, it was the Washington <laughs> State Penitentiary or something. What was it, Mike? King, King County Jail. King County Jail. Okay. So he, call, he, he called us. We got a collect call from the King County Jail. And we say, accept it, accept it. <laughs> so literally we put him, we pot him up on the air and we hear the whole recording. There was some recording. Mike could probably tell you more what it, what it said because I can't remember. But you hear some official recording and then it clicks over to him. And sure enough, um, we were pretty blown away. We, we, that was the last thing we expected. And he told the whole story. He didn't tell the whole story. He, to- he he did a top ten list on why it's not such a great idea to drop the soap in the shower. <laughs> of course he yeah, did. I did a bit. I did a bit. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> it, when when they finally did not want me to do a bit, they just wanted the story. I was still doing a bit. 
Yeah, of course. And it was actually hilarious. But, um, but you know, we were we were pretty blown away. And I think, uh, if I remember correctly, I, I wish I had tape on this, but I, I, I think he eventually explained what had happened. Um, or I think I wrote you guys. Anyway. I think I wrote you guys. And, and told the whole story. Happened? Okay. Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. And did you ever on yeah, your so show? We were blown away. Did you ever on your show do a recap like, hey, here's an interesting story about your favorite caller? Well, I think uh, people people heard that and knew. And then I, I, I believe, as Mike mentioned previously, that there were some newspaper articles about it. Uh, we were actually approached by the FBI because uh, I don't I don't know the agent's name. Maybe Mike does or, mm-hmm. or maybe doesn't. <laughs> I but, do. Um, you do. Uh, what was his name? Agent Jerry Howe, retired FBI. <laughs> I believe that Jerry Howe, if this is correct, was a fan of the show. <laughs> and, 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 and we were told. So so I got called in. Oh, Mason. you know what? You know but, what, Rick? You probably got approached by a Southern California FBI agent. Jerry Howe was the guy out of Seattle that was looking for me and was super not happy when I turned myself in. <laughs> well, there was a guy in San Diego. We got called to the head office in San Diego. Uh-huh. And we were told that we were going to be interviewed by the FBI. And we said, what do, you, what do they want to know from us? He's already turned himself in. What, you know? What do they need us for? Well, they had thought that we perhaps were accomplices, that oh, we no. enjoyed him so much on our show and must have known about it, but didn't turn him in. Mm. So uh, so anyway, so they, they wanted to interview us, but apparently the agent in San Diego was a huge fan of the show who was looking for Mike by day and listening to him on the radio by <laughs> night and had no <laughs> idea. Oh, that's great. <laughs> That is, which is awesome yeah that is hilarious <laughs> and of course we knew he was a bank robber we fooled the fbi <laughs> yeah <laughs> now rick didn't they um didn't the listeners have some sort of uh ongoing thing about what had happened to me like people were they they were making up jokey speculations about where i'd oh yeah to? they did people yeah that we did we did that actually now that you mentioned that and um, it was funny as hell, but uh, but um, I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning, so I I, I can't really remember what anybody said. But um, right, but no, Mike was, Mike was or Drew Drew from San Diego was a legend. He was literally a talk show legend, and um, we had no idea he was drugged out. We had no idea of of any of this so we were just really sad to lose him and i hate to say it but when when he went to prison um it was sort of the breakup of our our too much show it was sort of the end um and it just kind of uh it's all your fault mike (laughs) fell apart another family ruined i feel pretty shitty about that exactly yeah (laughs) Yeah, it caused a divorce between me and Mason, unfortunately. Oh, man, that sucks. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Well, it's interesting because how I know Mike is basically the same reason. He was calling into a radio show all the time, this Too Beautiful to Live, and became a fan favorite. So maybe that's your destiny is to just be of course. a caller. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think I was funnier when I was on drugs, though. I think I was funnier. 
<laughs> you didn't edit yourself. I don't, I don't as much. know about that. Mike also so the the after and I'm I'm jumping without a question but uh, so Mike disappeared obviously and and went to prison and I told the story for years at bars and and mm-hmm. uh, you know to friends and and so on so uh, I'm I remember this vividly I was hosting Yahoo's fantasy football live show uh, which was the first one of that what is now many fantasy football shows on television. And we aired live on the front of Yahoo to millions and gazillions of people every Sunday morning. And I'm sitting there and I, I go into Facebook, which was just, you know, I don't know how many years old it was at the time, three or four, five years old, whatever. I think this was around 2007, maybe 2008. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I was, I was in Austin. I was fresh in Austin. So it was probably 2008, somewhere around there. Yeah. And, and I get this Facebook friend request from Mike Frizzell. And I was just blown away. And I, I didn't know whether or not to accept it. I didn't know if for some reason he was angry at me for not you know, <laughs> sending him uh, sending him a cake with a file in it or something. You know, I, I don't know. So uh, so I but I, I I felt like I knew him and I felt like he was he had been a great guy and had no bone to pick with me. So I um, it was my first uh, ex-con Facebook friend. Oh. And um I mean, and, and so I, I, I contacted him immediately. I wrote him a Facebook message, and um, and you know we hit it off again. And I, I said, listen, I don't have any money to pay you, but if you want to ghostwrite some jokes for me for this, you know, for Fantasy Football Live, because I was the anchor of that, I, I would love that. And he did, and he did it for I think two full seasons. Is that right? Yeah, it sounds right. And yeah, I would send you probably 15 to 20 jokes uh, every week. And then, and then I think I, you were taking, um, you were taking like calls or recordings. And I think I did get something on the air once too. I, I got to do my own shtick one time, <laughs> at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, I mean, the stuff was amazing. And um I I just can't even tell you how valuable it, it was. It made it made uh, it made me funny, which is um, really hard to do. I've I, I've never been able to do that myself. So you know, it was it was really um, it was great to have that boost. So you know, Letterman and all those guys um, and to, to today with Kimmel and whoever else, they all have a team of ten writers. Yeah. You know, Mike had himself and uh, was just as good as any. So. Uh, you know, it was just great, and, and uh, we've stayed in touch. We've stayed in touch since then. So, to my good fortune. That you just stole my last question. Okay, um, <laughs> Mike or Rick, do you have any other questions or stories? I mean, I guess my question that I wasn't I wasn't always clear on is. How, when you were with us, what was it for about nine months or something? Were, were uh, you... I was a I was a fugitive for nine nine months. I think um, I was in on the show. I think the show started about five months before I turned myself in. So I was with so, you guys for four or five months. So, so while you were on our show, were you robbing banks? And if so, 
why did you not give me any of that money? <laughs> he gave you 12 bucks. <laughs> That's true. Well, you know, 12 bucks went a lot, lo- uh, lot longer back in 1993. That's for sure. A lot further. Uh, were you yeah. robbing banks when, when you were with us? Uh, yeah, I was robbing banks um, the whole time. Um, when I wasn't robbing them, I was either uh, listening to the show or just um, sitting almost drooling watching basketball games that I might have bet on in Tijuana. Um, ah, got it. Yeah, but so, I guess a, another reason that you were on our show maybe because we were 7 to midnight – you can't rob a bank between seven and midnight. <laughs> that's that's very so true. You, unless, you had a day. You had a day job. And unless you're doing an Ocean's Eleven, Twelve, or Thirteen type job, yeah, that, that's true. That's true. You have but to go in during hours. So, so you were actually going out in San Diego and and robbing banks, or I mean, back then, well, we had an 800 number, so you could have called us from anywhere. You could have been in Arizona. You could have been in Colorado. It didn't really matter, but you didn't need to be listening to the show. You just knew what time to call. No, I see. I like to. I like to always be listening uh, because I, I wanted up to the second context because I think things are always funnier with context, like not just doing a bit, you know. Always got to right. keep it keep it within like like the the jokes that I wrote for Yahoo, um, for your Yahoo show. They're always funnier if it's like something that happened last night, you know, not just something I've been sitting on for years, you know. True, true. So yeah, so that's that's the only thing I really wanted to know uh, about that time, and then I wanted to know, I guess, um, the, I, I guess one more thing is is what it was like going in the studio and did it feel natural for you? Did it feel like something you, you could have done on a regular basis? We, you know, were you comfortable uh, mm-hmm. sitting there for five hours, et cetera, et cetera? It totally felt comfortable. It felt like what I was born to do. And at, at the time, uh, the, the way you guys were doing your show, I mean, you took callers, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't a, a Lee Hacksaw Hamilton situation where you're trying to hammer home the hot takes and getting into hot sports debates or whatever. You know, you're just taking calls from cool people, you know, and just having a, a shoot the breeze conversation. And it's kind of like the show that, that uh, we're talking about tonight, TBTL. It's just um, it's relaxed and it's friendly and it's fun. And that was the kind of thing that I wanted to do. I mean, I, when I came out of broadcast school, I was trying to get a job in television, which, you know, was a bullshit situation that I never would have been good at (laughs) anyway. But, um, but all my years as a young man and, uh, a kid and as a, an adult listening to talk radio, this was the kind of thing and this was the kind of program that I felt like I could really get behind and do. And it felt really great and natural. And I, I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, Pittsburgh and Atlanta were playing Monday night football um, on the, on the monitor. And I was having a nice conversation with Mason and, and all the regular callers were calling in and they felt like they were like part of something cool. You know, one of their guys had graduated uh, yeah. onto the, onto the varsity or whatever. 
and 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 really rick that's when um it, that's when i you know it made me super sad when i went home that night i was uh despondent because i had talked to uh at the baseball well, game that's I what i was to, hoping for I, I was hoping for you to be despondent. That's that was the whole goal, right? <laughs> uh, the the was it, was he the program director or the station manager Howard? Yes, he uh, was the program director. He was the program director, and I talked to him at the baseball game, and he was a real nice fella. And I just I felt like the way you guys were advocating for me, and the conversation I had with him, that um, if circumstances were different, this would be something where I could get a Saturday show or something, and. And worked my way because I think that's where Jim Rome started, right? He was a sat he he was a Saturday guy, young guy out of UCSB, and then you know he had a successful show, and then it just moved on and on and on, and he got really successful. And I was thinking, you know, in in a universe where I hadn't uh, robbed dozens and dozens of banks and um, and been a drug addict and left my family and been on the most wanted list. Um, here it is. I mean, it's what I really enjoy doing and what I want to do is, is about to happen, but it can't happen. It'll just, you know, this is, it's a complete bullshit situation. And I was like, well, I, I just need to get right. You know? Um, cause if I, if I don't, it's not like I'll ever make it back to this point, but if I don't get right, I'm just going to die. And this is going to be the saddest thing anyone ever heard, you know? Right. You for sure. I mean, you definitely could have done it. Look, it's interesting. And I, I, I'll tell you this in 30 seconds, but the way I got into that radio station, I, I had just gotten back from covering the war in Yugoslavia. I'd been shot at and all kinds of crazy things happened. And I was, I said, I'm going to get my ass out of here and go back home and do what I love to do. So I call. I, I befriended a guy at the station who was a producer. I said, "Get mentioned to that guy, Howard Friedman, that I would be great. He did. Mm -hmm. And Howard took my call and he said, why the hell would I put you on the radio? You've never been on the radio. Don't ever call me again. So, of course, what did I do? I hung up the phone and called him again. <laughs> and I did it. And I pestered him and I pestered him some more and I pestered him some more, literally for months until he finally uh, relented and said, um, I'll tell you what, I have a guy on Saturdays. Um, you can go on with him for three hours from 12 to three at three Oh one. I want you to disappear and never call me again. So you'll get your one shot. You can, we'll tape record it for you and you can go mm -hmm. find a, a job in some small town. Oh yeah. That's cool. And I, I said, Oh, you mean you want me on with, I won't mention his name. Yeah, he peels paint off my wall. I know who you're talking about. Great. <laughs> so uh, I, it was a can't-lose situation for me because my um, my dog could go and co-host that show and be better than the guy that I was on with. So um, <laughs> I was just teed up. Te this guy was like – he made Lee Hamilton look like a 1960s acid dropper. I mean so, uh, so anyway, I uh, – I went, I did the show. We did it live from the Great Western Forum where the Lakers used to play. And at 3.01, the phone rings on the, the board operator's phone rings. And the guy goes, Rick, it's for you. It's Howard. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I picked up the phone and he said, all right, you did your three hours. You going to leave me alone? And I said, absolutely. That was the deal. He said, 
And uh, I won't use the colorful word that he said. He said, fuck you. And I said, what? And he said, fuck you. And I said, why? And he said, because you were damn good. I want you to be back next Saturday at the same time. Yes. And I said, I said, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I did it for three or four more Saturdays before he ended up putting me on permanently with Mason. And the reason I tell you that story is because it was just perseverance and mm. one show of, of doing well. And I know you could have done that. And as much as that probably kills you to hear it, I, I know that's what you would have done and, and how you would have succeeded. And if, if anything, you know, you should take solace in that, that, you know, you, you've had, you have that talent and we all make mistakes in life. We all have regrets and we all have missed opportunities and all that stuff. But, you know, you've rebounded well in your life and you, you know, you turned it around um, and you've, you still have that talent. So uh, it's nothing you've ever lost. So, uh, you know, that's, that's a blessing and a curse. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, you, you, there's no doubt in my mind you, you would have been the best guy on the station. So. Well, I appreciate it, man. That's, that means a lot. Um, the, the landscape of sports radio has changed a lot since then. I don't know that, that, uh, you could get away with doing it the way you guys were doing it because it was too fun. <laughs> um, it was, it was too great and I enjoyed it so much. And, and I, uh, appreciated the chance to be on with you and and Mason because I didn't have anything else in my life and it was the only enjoyment that I had on any given day and I know if you're listening to this um, and you want to uh, <laughs> criticize because I had left my family to do this bullshit um, in Southern California. I understand how you feel, but you know, I, I needed a distraction and it was a beautiful distraction. And Rick, I, I didn't want to bring you on just to wax my balls about, uh, <laughs> being funny back in the day. Um, you've, but I wanted you on because you've been a, a really good friend to me since we reconnected. So, before it starts raining on my face again, I'm going to give it back to uh, Christy. Th th thanks, thanks well, for coming on. Now. Yeah, thank you. Um, but I mean, <laughs> I just want to make another point that I mean, Mike kind of said it in not so many words. But if it weren't for your show, Rick, Mike would never have gotten clean because you Probably dangled not. his dream in front of him, and he said, "I want that dream, and I need to get myself right so that I." could potentially happen and that never would have happened if you hadn't brought him on the show and had that so he owes you a lot well i would like to take credit for that and have him send me some gift cards but the <laughs> truth is is that i can't take credit for that because you know all we did was answer the phone and i didn't even do that the board operator did so um maybe, uh, maybe you should send dave marcus some gift cards <laughs> wasn't he the guy they called helicopter head <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. But he was you know, a nice dude. I remember it, meeting him. Yeah. We can't take it. We can't take any credit for Mike's talent, but I sure will try. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for coming on the show and uh, answering all my it's questions. It's my pleasure. 
my my pleasure and uh it's it's uh, it's always great and uh when i make when i finally get the movie made about mike's life uh we'll save you a front row seat although it's probably better sitting back but yeah we'll we'll save one for you <laughs> and can people hear you somewhere are you do you still have a show uh you know uh no i actually live at john clayton's mother's house so we just hang out together <laughs> in the and, basement <laughs> in the basement yeah no i uh, i i um you know i did the the last thing what the what the heck was the last thing i did i guess i i had um after the radio show i i did some tv for a while um uh, you know that show extra i was on for four years and then i i hosted a show on tbs called extra movies for guys extra like movies mm-hmm. which was movies for guys was really fun um i had a, a, a short-lived primetime game show on fox called the chamber which really sucked and um and then i hosted fantasy football live for like five years on yahoo and i don't think oh i did some espn radio that's right yeah I did some with ESPN marcellus radio wiley right for for yeah for filling in uh for uh, a you know like a year in uh in LA um so so yeah so um but not really now not not anymore I'm producing now and uh uh you know just trying to stay above ground like the rest of us so <laughs> anyway yeah. great talking to you guys yeah, thank you so much good luck with Thanks, the podcast man. yeah thank you Thanks, all right coming up next week Part four of the McFrizz Files, Life in Prison with Brian McCall. If you would like to get involved with the show and ask Mike some questions, um, go to our Facebook page, Little Red Bandwagon. Um, our show Twitter is at LRB Podcast. Send us an email at littleredbandwagon at gmail.com or leave me a voicemail at 802-432-TBTL. Trying to anesthetize the way that you feel ready Oh, is 